It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. You know, I made a little joke a couple weeks ago to Martha McCallum, actually, after Christine McVie of Fleetwood Mac had died. So, you know, I'll be your breaking news guy for any other classic rock figures who pass away. And maybe I shouldn't have been so flippant. I mean, last week it was Jeff Beck, and then last night I learned about the death of David Crosby. Uh, before I get into that, it's Friday. It means the weekend's coming up. Hope you have uh, some good plans for this weekend. Maybe those might include watching Media Buzz Sunday morning at 11 Eastern on Fox. Uh, we got a lot to get to here, some of which we will preview on this very podcast. Um, but the thing about Crosby is, and I'm not going to lionize him. I mean, he died yesterday at 81. It's amazing that he lived that long. He would be the first one to say that. I mean, he was in many ways his own worst enemy in terms of a lifelong battle with drugs and weapons and illness. Uh, So I don't want to paint him as some kind of saint. He certainly didn't view himself that way. Um, He became, by the mid-'70s, you know, after Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and later Young were sort of at the height of their fame, uh, a coke addict and a heroin addict. Uh, Here's an interview from 1990, People Magazine. You don't sit down and say, gee, I think I'll become a junkie. When I started out doing drugs, it was marijuana and psychedelics, and it was fun. It was the 60s. We thought we were expanding our consciousnesses. But he said later, drugs became more for blurring pain. You don't realize you're getting as strung out as you are. I had the money to get more and more addicted. Well, then he later had a long, long battle with Hepatitis C. He had to get a liver transplant in the 90s. Um, I didn't even realize, you know, in the 80s, spent nine months in a Texas prison on drug and weapons charges. A couple years later, arrested on charges of drunken driving, hit and run, possession of a concealed pistol. Um, He finally quit hard drugs, by his account at least, in 1986. Um, anyway, he's had a checkered life, but he also, you know, was inspirational in terms of the groundbreaking songs that he wrote, starting out with the birds, you know, you go back to 1964 and turn, 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 and then later hooking up with Stills and Nash, this almost unbelievable sound that the three of their voices, better than my voice today, could form. And writing such songs as Almost Cut My Hair. Um, He was a great songwriter. Gorgeous voice. I mean, he went on to do a series of solo albums or, or double, dual albums, I guess I should say, with Graham Nash. And unfortunately, Nash and others later lost patience with him after giving him many, many, many chances in terms of any, you know, reunion or just, you know, becoming friends again. But, you know, every artist, musical or otherwise, is a, uh, a figure of his time. And so one of the headlines I saw in New York Times, you know, Crosby, a voice of the Woodstock generation. And that was true. Um, he helped to write the, the song Wooden Ships, 
beautiful harmonies. Long Time Gone, which he wrote after Bobby Kennedy's assassination in 1968. And to me, the most amazing thing was, once he finally got clean, that even when he was 80 years old, and by the way, he was on social media the day before yesterday, so this did come as quite a surprise. Um, And he did get, get kicked out of the birds for just being difficult to work with, by the way. You know, from the era of Mr. Tambourine Man. Uh, but the thing is, I heard some of his later music and interviews where he hooked up, for example, with Michael McDonald uh, of the Doobie Brothers, a song called The River. It was fabulous, you know, full of rich harmonies and original melodies. And I thought, wow, how is he still doing this at this age? And he himself said, you know, I don't know if I have two weeks left or a few years, but as long as I can make good music... I'm going to try to do that. He said, I'm 80 years old. I'm going to die fairly soon. That's how that works. And so I'm trying really hard to crank out as much music as I possibly can, as long as it's really good. Okay. Let's move on to a little politics. So I talked to you yesterday about um, Mike Pompeo's book coming out, taking some shots at Nikki Haley. Was she trying to maneuver to uh, replace Mike Pence on the ticket with Donald Trump in 2020? So Nikki Haley was on with Brett Baer yesterday, and Baer says, is this true? And she said, no. And, you know, Pompeo even says he's not sure if it's true. I never had a conversation with uh, Jared Ivanka or the president about the vice presidency. Uh, What I will tell you is it's really sad when you're having to go out there and put lies and gossip to sell a book. Boom. She knows how to punch back. I don't know why he said it, but that's exactly why I stayed out of D.C., as much as possible to get away from the drama and get away from the gossip, focusing on my job. This story says Fox News broke the news yesterday that Haley's exploring a run for president in 2024. I don't know if that was a state secret, uh, maybe just confirmation that she's actually going to do it. So no wonder she and Pompeo are doing this sort of preliminary shadow boxing. Okay, all of these tech layoffs cannot be good for the economy. Microsoft laying off 10,000 workers. Alphabet. Google's parent company, laying off 12,000 workers. You know, we obsess so much on Elon Musk and, you know, a few cases where people say they're being shadow banned or he intervenes or he says something provocative. But, wow, um, I can't imagine this is going to help the economy. And now Reed Hastings, one of the founders of Netflix, um, is stepping down. And, you know, the press is sort of casting this as, uh, well, you know, uh, this was long time planned. You know, he's one of these original founders who wanted to give up the job. And so he's giving up his co-CEO title of the executive chairman. So, you know, he'll still be an influence at Netflix, but Netflix is having problems. Um, you know, Reed goes back to the days when you would get your Netflix DVDs through the mail, but it's having problems. There's a lot of competition out there for streaming and, Um, People have only so much money to spend. So it's just interesting to me that that this is happening. Uh, Another little media item is uh, the rap has a little exclusive about CNN, the morning show, CNN this morning, the new morning show with Don Lemon, Caitlin Collins, and Poppy Harlow. The EP, the executive producer, has left. That is not a good sign when... The show has only been on the air for a very short period of time, a few months at most. And I don't know. I've watched it. 
Um, I like some of them individually. I just don't think it has the chemistry that Chris Licht thought it had, which is maybe why it's getting a new producer. Um, it's hard. You know, if you want your niche to be news and not opinion, and at the same time, you need a certain amount of chemistry. Uh, I, I just think it's a real challenge. Not easy to do. Chris Lick knows how to do it because he helped create Morning Joe. Well, now he'll have to recreate this show or enhance it with different cast of characters. All right, story number one. Let's start with Alec Baldwin because I was really surprised by this. Alec Baldwin, as you probably heard, will be charged with involuntary manslaughter for handling that gun that went off on the set of Rust, killing his cinematographer, Helena Hutchins. It is just such a tragedy. This happened 15 months ago. And the prosecutors in New Mexico, I don't know, I don't think they have a great case. You know, so many, when I was growing up, like every show had guns. All the Westerns, Gunsmoke, Bonanza, a lot of TV shows with guns. And a lot of movies with guns. And generally, it is the job of the armorer, professional who is supposed to keep track of gun safety on the set, who was also charged, by the way, uh, by the prosecutors in New Mexico, uh, to make sure that no gun with live ammunition goes off. Now, Alec Baldwin is also a producer of this movie, so he has a larger role there. Um, the prosecutors have been giving interviews saying things like, uh, well, you know, you should not point a gun at someone that you're not willing to shoot. That goes to basic safety standards, said the DA for Santa Fe County. And I just think, are they going to get 12 jurors to agree that it's the actor that he somehow knew or should have known? Like, he claims he didn't pull the trigger. They say that's not true. Maybe he doesn't realize that he did. But... In how many of hundreds and hundreds and thousands of movies and TV shows does it really fall to the actor to make sure that you don't have a gun that only has dummy bullets? Seriously. And, you know, he was just totally broken up by this. He had reached a financial settlement with the family. The family was willing to acknowledge that Alec Baldwin, you know, certainly didn't intend to do this. Nobody is saying he intended to do this. That's why it's involuntary manslaughter. But still, according to these charges, he faces up to 18 months in prison. And then there's a five-year version if it's found that he uh, did a certain kind of gun enhancement. Seems to me like some prosecutors are trying to make a name for themselves with a pretty big target. And maybe this ends up breaking down ideologically, you know, if you like— Alec Baldwin, you say, well, of course, it's not his fault. If you like the, the roles that he's played in all these different movies, if you like them on 30 Rock, if you like them playing Trump on SNL, and if you didn't like him, it's like, oh, of course, totally negligent, horrible, you should go to jail. Um, Baldwin's lawyer put out a statement saying this decision distorts Helena Hutchins' tragic death and represents a terrible miscarriage of justice. Mr. Baldwin had no reason to believe there was a live bullet in the gun or anywhere on the movie set. He relied on the professionals 
with whom he worked, who assured him the gun did not have live rounds. We will fight these charges, and we will win. Well, somebody effed up here, or you wouldn't have this young woman having died. And they're blaming Baldwin. And I just think, I mean, it's not like this has never happened before, but fortunately it's a very rare occurrence. But is it the actor's fault? And and by the way, that settlement that was reached with the Hutchins family, the idea was they would go ahead and finish the movie, and that would provide the financial underpinnings for the settlement that would go to the Hutchins family. Well, now that's not going to happen. You can't finish the movie if it's uh, you're defending yourself on criminal charges. So I just think it's a case of the prosecutors overreaching and maybe seeing a ticket to fame since a, a trial of this nature, which will probably go to trial at this point, you know, is just going to be a sensational case. I don't think they'll get a conviction. I could be wrong. I don't practice law for a living, but I've covered a hell of a lot of cases. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. And speaking of law, number two, remember the Supreme Court Dobbs decision? And how it leaked uh, early on the draft to a political reporter. Well, guess what? The Supreme Court can't find the leaker. Ah, sorry. We tried. It's amazing how often leakers are not found in these kinds of investigations. So there's an actual report from SCOTUS saying it is not possible to determine the identity of any individual who may have disclosed the document or how the draft opinion ended up with Politico. No one confessed, oh, this is a shock, no one confessed to publicly disclosing the document, and none of the available forensic and other evidence provided a basis for identifying any individual as the source of the document. While investigators and the court's IT experts cannot absolutely rule out a hack, that's not what happened. The evidence to date reveals no suggestion of improper outside access. And the report says more than 80 people had access to the draft opinion. 97 were interviewed, some more than once. Um, But the woman, the Supreme Court marshal in whose name this was issued, Gail Curley, says, based on a preponderance of the evidence standard, it was impossible to identify the leaker. Uh, It did not indicate whether the justices themselves question, well, how the hell would you crack the case if you don't talk to the justices? Investigation focused on court personnel, temporary law clerks, and permanent employees who may or may not have had access to the draft opinion. Let's see what else here. Um, Each employee was asked to sign an affidavit affirming that he or she did not disclose the Dobbs draft opinion to any person not employed by the Supreme Court. And to swear to a notary, and they were told, like, if you lie, you will lose your job. Okay. There was a consultation with uh, former Homeland Security Secretary Michael Chertoff. Um, Chertoff said the review was thorough. He said that he can't identify any uh, 
additional useful investigative measures. A couple more points on this. The report called this one of the worst breaches of trust in its history. The leak was no mere misguided attempt at protest. It was a grave assault on the judicial process. It is essential that we deliberate with one another candidly and in confidence. No exaggeration to say the integrity of the judicial proceedings depends on the inviolability of internal deliberations. Now, remember during that period of three or more weeks when the story had broken, but before the final opinion was issued, there was a lot of back and forth in the media and elsewhere about whether or not this was an attempt to pressure one or more justices into peeling off from the majority opinion and therefore saving Roe v. Wade. I'll come back to Roe v. Wade a little later in the podcast because we're about to have the 50th anniversary or what would have been the 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade. And it just goes to show you it is hard. Um, Part of this had to do with a sort of antiquated computer system or technology that the court uses. For example, up-to-date logs aren't kept on all the printers. So somebody could have easily printed it out. Nobody would have known. Okay, so here's the kicker. Donald Trump responding to this. Supreme Court just announced it's not able to find out, even with help of our crack FBI, air quotes, who the leaker was. They'll never find out. And it's important that they do. So go to the reporter and ask him slash her who it was. If not given the answer, put whoever in jail until the answer is given. You might add the publisher and the editor to the list. Stop playing games. This leaking cannot be allowed to happen. It won't take long before the name of this slime is revealed. Well, let me just sort of jump in here with a little law school lesson. On what grounds would you go to the reporter, who of course is going to refuse to reveal confidential sources, that's what journalists do, it's certainly what I've always done, and say, we are putting you in jail until you talk. Now, this may ring a bell because it's happened. It's happened in national security cases or in criminal investigations where journalists have gone to jail. Judith Miller, uh, formerly of the New York Times, once spent a very long time, I think about three months, sitting in jail before her source released her. But it's got to be a national security case or a criminal case where arguably the right to the evidence from this person who happens to be a journalist is more important than, and I will never sort of agree to this as a card-carrying, ink-stained wretch, is more important than the principle of protecting a free press. So I don't understand, and and this is a case where something, an opinion leaked early. I mean, I'd like to know who it is, but I don't understand what Trump is thinking when he says, put the reporter in jail, put the reporter's editor in jail. What would be the charge? On what grounds would you put them behind bars? Because you don't like the fact that they're not talking? Don't work that way. 
All right. We move on to number three. Yesterday, the Washington Post had this long TikTok about Joe Biden and the classified documents, all of which concluded, with a lot of reporting, that the Biden and his team had messed this up. Today, the New York Times has a long TikTok about the Biden team and how they messed this up. So this is one of those rare instances where I've been saying this for a week. The mainstream media is actually agreeing with me, but belatedly, and in the internal competition, the Post beat the Times, but nevertheless, they both end up at the same place, which is this was a colossal screw-up. Let me share some of this Times piece. The decision by President Biden and his top advisors to keep the discovery of classified documents secret from the public and even most of the White House for 68 days was driven by what turned out to be a futile hope that the incident could be quietly disposed of without broader implications for Biden or his presidency. Well, how'd that work out for you? The handful of advisors who were aware of the initial discovery on November 2nd, six days before the midterms, gambled that without going public, they could convince the Justice Department that the matter was little more than a minor good-faith mistake, unlike Trump's hoarding of documents at his Florida estate. In fact, the Biden strategy was profoundly influenced by the Trump case. The goal for the Biden team, according to people who spoke familiar with the internal investigations on the condition of anonymity, was to win the trust of the Justice Department investigators and demonstrate that President and his team were cooperating fully. In other words, they would head off any serious legal repercussions by doing exactly the opposite of what the Biden lawyers had seen the Trump legal team do. And I love the understatement in the next sentence. In the short term, at least, the bet seems to have backfired. Well, of course it backfired because they were so hung up on the notion They were so hung up on the notion that they were doing the right thing and they could quietly settle this, this, that they completely forgot about the fact that they were withholding information from the public. The strategy has left Biden open to withering criticism for concealing the discovery for so long. Well-deserved, in my view. And now, as he gets ready for a re-election campaign... The handling of the document has eroded his capacity to claim the high road against Trump. Also raising questions about his team's ability to navigate Republican attacks from Capitol Hill, which you know a lot more of those are coming. So the decisions were made first with the husband and wife pair of Bob Bauer, who is Joe Biden's personal attorney, and Anita Dunn, who is a White House senior advisor, in fact, she helped in the campaign, and she's coming back. she has come back for her second stint, somebody I've known in a long time. Also, Biden's sister, Valerie Biden-Owens, uh, and Richard Sauber, who was the White House lawyer overseeing the investigations. Eventually, the circle widened just a little bit, according to this uh, account, but not much, so that, for example, Karine Jean-Pierre told reporters neither she nor her staff were involved in crafting the strategy, so she was just sent out there as a sacrificial lamb. Some in the White House, speaking on condition of anonymity, acknowledge that the disciplined way the president and his inner circle withhold information, sharing it only on a need-to-know basis, has hurt Biden 
in a situation where officials had the option to be proactive. So finally, it leaks out. Um, I guess it's about 10 days ago. CBS News breaks the first part of the story. There was a series of rolling disclosures and misstatements by the president's PR team. I mean, this was just handled so horribly, creating a furor where there didn't need to be one. Oh, how about this? Advisors said there was no sense of urgency to search the Wilmington and Rehoboth Beach homes because the Secret Service guards both of them and, yeah, any sensitive documents there would be safe. They didn't think there'd be any documents there. Well, they were right about the beach house and wrong about the Wilmington house, not to mention the garage. Anita Dunn, once this first part came out, was adamant that the White House should keep the public information flow to a trickle and instead focus on how different Biden's case was from the Trump probe. Senior justice officials were surprised that the White House hadn't released a detailed timeline of the discovery before Merrick Garland announced the appointment of the special counsel, Robert Herr. So even DOJ was like, what are these people thinking? I do not understand it. It reminds me of The Best and the Brightest. That was the name of a book from the Vietnam era about JFK's advisors and how they were all these, you know, the Robert McNamara's who just absolute top politicos and academics who nevertheless led the country into the Vietnam War. So finally yesterday, and he could have done this a week ago, and he could have done this a month ago, by the way, uh, Biden is out in California inspecting the uh, storm damage, and so he can no longer just avoid some kind of interaction with reporters. And so he talked about discovering the documents, and he said the following. We're cooperating fully and looking forward to getting this resolved quickly. He's reading off a piece of paper, by the way. I think you're going to find there's nothing there. I have no regrets. I'm following what the lawyers have told me they want to do. It's exactly what we're doing. There's no there there. So Joe Biden, out in California, goes Joan Didion. There's no there there. Except there is a there there now, which is you didn't disclose. You covered it up. Remember I talked yesterday about how when they disclosed the first batch of documents, well, what they did was they didn't disclose it. They confirmed the CBS story. They knew there was a second match, and they didn't reveal it then. They let it dribble out. The worst damn thing you can do in damage control. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. CNN is reporting that the people around the president are talking about the D.C. elite making D.C. noise. This is all going to blow over. And Biden is, you know, honoring his promise to uphold the rule of law. That's all fine. That's all fine. But seriously, um, this is a self-inflicted crisis. I think the odds are overwhelming that the special counsel, depending on how broadly he interprets his mandate, will find that they didn't do anything terrible. They discovered the documents. They contacted the uh, counsel's office. They contacted the archives. And they gave them back. And here is Andrew Bates, a White House spokesman on the record, when it comes to political speculation, uh, it basically goes back to the president uh, saying when all the pundits said that Biden couldn't win the election. And he says they, what their approach is to tune out the noise. 
And even Jonathan Alter, longtime Newsweek columnist, big supporter of Biden, I would say, is a pretty negative piece in the New York Times. President is now an elderly swimmer in a sea of sharks. Some of them may be Democrats. Not hard to envision an ambitious primary challenger arguing more in sorrow than in anger that he or she supports most of the Biden record, but elections are about the future. Party needs a more vigorous candidate. Obviously, Biden would be 86 at the end of the second term. And then he kind of says, well, imagine if he doesn't run. Uh, taking a leave from Nancy Pelosi. And then, he, you know, his legacy would be intact. So that's the state of play right now, folks. Let me get to number four, because this is the annual Right to Life March that for 49 years after the Supreme Court adopted Roe back in 1973, you know, was an effort by those who are pro-life activists, those who are opposed to abortion on moral grounds, to try to change the calculus. But now, um, you have, there's going to be a much lower key gathering today here in Washington. And you have, for example, the Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America saying that any candidate, any 2024 candidate, that is, who does not support federal restrictions should be disqualified from winning the party's nomination. But some Republican strategists, this is an analysis in the Times, uh, worry that such a position could repel general election swing voters who polls show are turned off by the idea of a national ban. Raising the question of what it means to be pro-life in a post-Roe v. Wade era. Donald Trump has talked about this, saying that he thinks that's part of the reason that his party didn't do that well in the midterms, and that set off a backlash from uh, evangelicals and others. And so what started off as, well, the Supreme Court ruling makes sense because it returns it to the states. And some states will allow abortion, and some states will not allow abortion. That was the rationale that a lot of people embraced. But look, you can't stop activists from pushing for more. If people think that it is morally reprehensible that even some states allow abortion as a legal procedure— or just simply want to tighten the restrictions, whether it's abortions using, you know, medical products or traveling to another state to get an abortion. You know, that's the basis of a free country, but it's a little bit different than many of the Supreme Court rulings defenders offered when, well, first when the opinion was leaked, and then finally when it came out. Let me wrap up with this, number five. Donald Trump, you will not be shocked to hear, files a lot of lawsuits. But this is unusual. A Florida-based judge has ordered nearly $1 million in sanctions against Trump and his attorney, Alina Haba, calling the former president a mastermind of strategic abuse of the judicial process. Now, this is a blistering order uh, described here by Politico in which the judge, who's a Bill Clinton appointee, says that this lawsuit that Donald Trump filed against Hillary Clinton and dozens of former DOJ and FBI officials, um, in Politico's telling, was an almost cartoonish abuse of the legal system. Here's a quote from the opinion. Here we are confronted with a lawsuit that never should have been filed, which was completely frivolous, both factually and legally, and which was brought in bad faith for an improper purpose. 
Mr. Trump is a prolific and sophisticated litigant who is repeatedly using the courts to seek revenge on political adversaries. Uh, He cannot be seen as a litigant blindly following the advice of a lawyer. So they've got to cover, according to the ruling, $938,000 in legal costs for the 31 defendants. The biggest single award of legal fees goes to Hillary Clinton, $172,000. Now, the judge, Donald Middlebrooks, goes on to say that Trump's people cherry-picked evidence or distorted evidence, tried to conjure up an argument about a grand conspiracy between Hillary and the DOJ to target Trump. This is a deliberate attempt to harass, to tell a story without regard to facts. And even citing, they even cited it in this lawsuit, Russian intelligence, as a basis for one of their claims without noting it was Russian intelligence and that former director of national intelligence, John Radcliffe, had said it was unverified. And they even, the judge even notes that the lawyer, Haba, attacked him in a Fox News interview. Now, this could all be overturned on appeal, or at least the part where they've got to pay the uh, almost million dollars in legal fees. Um, But let's just say it's a rather unusual ruling, which is why I have chosen to end the podcast with it. Once again, have a great weekend, folks. Catch Media Buzz on Sunday morning. Uh, Thank you for spending this time with me. I'll, uh, I'll work on my voice over the weekend. You know, sometimes I've got it, sometimes I don't. Uh, I don't have the excuse of David Crosby. I don't sing for a living. I just kind of croak it out. Uh, I always appreciate spending this time with you. Back here Monday with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.